You're listening to The Yoga Room with Mark Stevens, a place for exploring evocative and provocative ideas and conversations about yoga, life, myth, science, and making the world a better place for all. My guest today is Bernie Clark, a well-known and beloved figure in the global yoga realm, known to most for his teachings and writings about the body and yin yoga, perhaps not so well-known for his depth in both science and mythical sources of meaning in life. Uh, Before further introducing him, I want to sort of set the table a bit for our conversation by starting by simply suggesting that, well, throughout human history that we've sought to understand uh, the nature of life, of the cosmos, and that we're trying to suggest that we're doing our best to make sense of it all from the very earliest times of human existence. We've also lived socially in close connection and close interaction with one another and with needs for safety and security, for love and joy, for well-being. And amidst all of this, of course, the universe has always abounded with mysteries, even as we gradually learn more and more. We now have a pretty good understanding that we live on a spherical planet, that the sun is at the center of our solar system, that the stars are really, really, really far away, and that germs and viruses can make us sick and the doctors should wash their hands before delivering babies we've learned a lot and much of it we even take for granted because it just seems like plain common sense now but it has not always been that way indeed we've always lived in a world filled with mystery and i'll suggest that we always will even as many of the mysteries are somewhat sort of solved and and with it with the mysteries we've also lived with great superstition with often also myths about what is really real, and with suspicion of those who offer new ideas about the accepted or the dominant ideas of the day, including those, say, related to the anatomy of the human body and how it works. Put forth new ideas, and you might find that some people don't really like that. That will be a topic we'll come back to later with regarding some aspects of of anatomy and yoga. From the earliest times in every society, some pretty powerful people have sometimes tried to control how we think and what we know in order to maintain the order of everything just as they wish it to be. You might recall that Galileo, he got in a lot of trouble with the church of his time when he provided evidence in support of Copernicus's heliocentrism, and, and that it would be a very, very long time before the church let go of its idea that the earth is the center of the universe that God created. About 500 years later, we still have this dynamic, the widespread assertion of ideas, of myths, of alternative facts, as it is sometimes called these days, that support certain ways of thinking, certain ways of being, certain institutions, and at the same time, we have the ongoing march of science with new discoveries every day that dispel little bits of superstition and false ideas, perhaps one breath at a time, and that can disturb a lot of people. Now, science, I know it's a scary thing to some, but to be clear, it's a systematic method or enterprise, a way that builds and organizes knowledge in the form of testable explanations and predictions about everything, from little things like cells to very big things like galaxies. And we find really early roots of this in ancient India, in Egypt, in Mesopotamia, uh, before the Greeks took it much, much farther, with the learned people of that time often having greater knowledge of things like math and astronomy, even medicine, than we find commonly today among, say, the average educated person of the 21st, the 21st century. So we've developed a vast body of knowledge, given us abundant food, flight, medicine, reproducible 
printing, refrigeration, phones, the clothes you're wearing, and just about every one of your material possessions from your toothbrush to your eyeglasses to the glass that you drink from. Now, of course, before enduring all the science, superstition, and myths have persisted. And with many of the purveyors of superstitious ideas holding on to their ideas, those superstitious ideas, for as long as they can, often in great denial, only giving in, somewhat begrudgingly sometimes, to the truth, when it's sort of only, it's the only way they maintain some legitimacy. So, for example, the church did finally come around to accepting Copernicus's discoveries about heliocentrism, but only as much as they needed, they felt, to give up. As I say that, I want to also suggest that myth, as a way of giving us deeper meaning in our lives, will always have a place in our relationships and in so, so much more. It's delightful to me when I encounter someone in the yoga world, and there are many I will suggest, uh, but not so many that are say, strongly out there in the world, who have a depth in science and an appreciation for myth, and we might suggest sort of the dance of these. Uh, Bernie Clark has exhibited to us, I believe, that he loves learning about and sharing the things that really fascinate him. That As a child, I've learned from Bernie that he really enjoyed studying the world and how it works. And as a teen, he loved thinking about it all, about the mind, but also about the soul. The seemingly contradictory interests in science and spirituality continue to shape his philosophy well into his adult years. And then, so later then, with one foot in the commercial world of space as a scientist and computer technologies as a scientist, and another in the realm of meditation and yoga, he sought bridges between Eastern and Western maps of reality. And these maps, these bridges, are described in his teachings, in writings, with the hopes that others who share his fascinations will enjoy, or better be able to enjoy, what he has learned, what he has discovered, without having to go through the extraordinary labor of such detailed research as he has. Uh, Bernie has a degree in science. He spent 30 years as a senior executive in the high space tech industry and a high tech in space industry, I should say. And he also embarked upon meditation in the 1970s and began teaching yoga in the 1990s. Now, you might already know uh, Bernie either through direct workshops online or, or in person also from his books. He's a prolific author, uh, starting with his Your Body, Your Yoga trilogy, and then also his complete guide to yin yoga, now in its second edition. His book, Dancing, Shiva Dancing at King Arthur's Court, it was previously titled From the Gita to the Grail, and most recently, uh, Yin Insights. Bernie, welcome. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Mark. Thanks for the invitation. I have had the joy of reading your books. I appreciate you sending them to me. And I want to just kind of, if you're open to it, sort of dive dive in. And just to start with, just tell us about, if you like some of your own path, but how you came to the sensibilities of, of what is now generally described as, as yin yoga and, and your, your understanding of what that yoga is and how it's different from other approaches in the practice. Sure. Let's just dive right in and make a splash. Um, my introduction to yin yoga was a bit of a serendipity, I guess. I was on a retreat at a place that you know well, the White Lotus Foundation up there in Santa Barbara. And this retreat was led by Saul David Ray. It was a Thai yoga massage training. At that time, I was very much into Ashtanga practice. And Ashtanga 
my teachers, David Swenson and Tim Miller, they taught a lot of adjustments. You were to put the body into certain shapes. And when I did that, I realized I didn't really have a good sense of how far should I push a student to get them into some bound, twisting state. So I thought, well, maybe if I took a Thai massage training course, I would get to hone my, my sensibilities. So I took Saul's first course. That was about a nine or 10 day training. And then two years later, I decided to go back for the advanced training. And every morning he would start by giving a yoga class. And on the last day, the 10th day, I guess he ran out of ideas. So we, I think this was back in 2002. He said, how about today we do a yin class? And none of us had ever heard of yin, yin yoga. What's that? So we all said, sure, let's do it. And I thought that was a very different class to anything I'd uh, seen before. And maybe I wouldn't have thought anything about it, except the next day on my way home, I had some time to kill in Santa Barbara. So I was walking up and down the main street there, State Street. And just off around the corner was a little yoga studio. So I walked in there and they had a little bookstore in it. And I noticed there was a, well, back in these days, there was a VHS tape by some woman named Sarah Powers called Yin Yoga. And I thought, well, that's what Saul did yesterday. So I bought the VSH tape and brought it home. And every day for about three months, I did the flow that she had in there. And it had a huge effect on my Ashtanga practice. Like I've been doing Mysore practice for maybe five years at that time. I was in my late 40s, early 50s. But I still couldn't get my head to the floor in a pose called Prasarita Padottanasana A, the wide leg forward fold. My head and the floor were always in two different time zones. But after three months of doing this yin yoga stuff with Sarah Powers, my head was on the floor. Five years of a more active yang practice, my head wasn't on the floor. So I thought, wow, there's something about this. So I resolved to meet Sarah. And fortunately, she was coming up to the Northwest, you know, Seattle, for a conference that, that spring. And through Sarah, I met Paul Grilly as well. And I just that just got me into this whole thing about you really do need the other half. The other half of the practice it can't just all be yang. It can't just be the, you know, the real sweaty, hot, muscular movement type practice. You also need to slow it down sometimes. So that's kind of how I fell into Yin Yoga. It wasn't planned, but it was quite a serendipitous turn in my life. And a beautiful one. I, I just want to pick up on your last comment there about well, we really need balance in our practices and. Uh, I, too, spent many years in the Mysore-style Ashtanga Vinyasa practice and came very much to appreciate how it can also be very stressful that much of the promise of yoga is, is having less stress. I'm curious, then, how, then, at that time, did you find what might have been a dance for you of both yin and more flowish, or if not Ashtanga Vinyasa, some other kind of more yangish practice, if you will, or did you? Yeah, I was always a very type A personality. Um, type A for Ashtanga, if you want, but and I was always driven to do better, do better, do better. And when I first got into yoga asana practice, I, as you mentioned in my bio, I, I started meditation back in the 70s, but it wasn't until the 90s that I really added asana to help my meditation, really. And then I just fell into it and I wanted to do all the hard stuff. So Ashtanga, I trained with Shiva Ray for a while. Eric Schiffen was a hero of mine. Uh, so all, you know, it's just more and more and more. But once I reached my early 50s, I was reaching kind of a burnout stage. And I kind of hit a wall then. <clears throat> and it was unfortunate that at that time, yin yoga came along. Because I had it kept going the way I was going, I was going to do serious harm to my, to my psyche and to my body. It just couldn't do it anymore. 
what I what I could do in my 30s, I can't do in my 50s. And now I'm almost 70, so I realize each age has its stage. So you have to adapt to that. And so I was very grateful that I found Jin Yoga when I did, because that kind of allowed me to balance things. I'm still type A. I still try to go really deep into things further than I should. But at least now I can back off and realize, no, no, today's a yin day. I know I want to go out and you know run five miles or something, but today I'm just going to sit in Caterpillar for five or 10 minutes and do saddle for 20 minutes and just chill. So that to me was so valuable. Beautiful. Uh, so many of the teachers, well, everyone you've mentioned, I've crossed paths with and been friends with yes. the most. We all, all those, I think, that you've mentioned from Saul to Paul to Sarah to Eric to Shiva, we all taught together at Yoga Works at some time. And indeed, I will suggest that, that Saul really had an impact on a lot of us uh, in terms of the quality with which we connected with people with hands-on adjustments and all, that there was some some appreciation of the sensitivities of the body and, and uh, of attentive touching and learning as we touch and really listening to our students that, that Saul, I think, helped to convey and how beautiful to do that in a, in a yin context, that is, of holding postures longer and yeah. feeling more from inside that Eric, maybe Eric Schiffman idea also of being guided uh, from inside. Just for a moment, on the age thing, just kind of it's interesting, a question for you, either is that in some of the ancient literature, we're given kind of four stages of practice. The first, right. uh, we're, we're, we're uh, scratching the surface, we're in the physical part, just kind of getting our body uh, in our mind somewhat more connected, we might suggest, or working through the tensions that, in the physical body. And this gives way to more, over time, with a, to a practice in which the breath becomes more evident as a powerful phenomenon, pranayam. Uh, well, so stage one, asana is the focus. Stage two, pranayama is the focus. And then later in life, and this also could correlate to the conditions in our body, we come to uh, the more contemplative aspects of practice, to meditation. And then the final stage uh, is just you're there. You're just in it. There is really nothing to do. You you have arrived. And I'm just kind of curious for you in your life, that progression in where you are with respect to, say, asana, pranayama, meditation in your life, in your personal life, in your practices. Definitely, it changes all the time. Um, Paul Grilly has a, an arc of aging that he describes. And before I even describe that, there's a more important caveat is that always is always wrong. Never is never right. So when I suggest these things, I'm suggesting for maybe an average person, this may work, but not for everybody because everybody's unique. But on an average, we all follow this arc of aging where we start out completely young. A newborn baby is all mobility. There's no stability yet in the body. And you have to be very careful holding the head of a newborn baby because the neck isn't strong enough to support the weight of the head. But from that moment of birth onwards, we're becoming more and more yin-like. And somewhere in our teens, we're, we're developing more strength, more stability. We have all the flexibility we need when we're really young. We need the stability now. But maybe in our mid-20s, mid-30s, we might be in an optimal balance. And if we just stop there, that'd be great. But we keep going. We get stiffer and stiffer and stiffer, more yin-like, until we end life in rigor mortis. We're completely stiff, and there's no mobility at all. So we all kind of follow this arc of aging, maybe at different speeds. And at some point, you might take up yoga, and you can reverse time for a few years. But you know, you're never going to go back to being 19 again when you're 59. So at different stages in life, we have different things we need for balance. I'm not 16 years old anymore. I can't go out and play tennis all day and then come home and do my schoolwork and get up the next morning and I'm fresh as a daisy. 
though I do find at my stage in life right now, I'm 68, I would say about two thirds of my exercise, if you call it that, is yang, one third is yin. And I can see as I go further through this arc, I'm gonna to have to be more and more yin-like because I'm gonna to have to maintain my mobility. In my own personal view, there's three elements of physical health. There's strength, there's endurance, and there's mobility. Strength you can get maybe through yoga, but weightlifting, resistance training is probably better. Endurance, maybe you can get that in yoga, but I find in yoga, especially in the flow yoga, I plateau and I'm not sweating or exerting as much, so I like to run sprints. But mobility, that's my yin practice. And I find this is really what helps me. Like Right now while we're talking, I'm sitting on the floor. My, my desk is a coffee table, so I'm constantly sitting on the floor. This is not a defined yin practice, but it is yin yoga for the lower body. And I have no problem getting up and off the floor, and I hope to keep that well into my, my 80s, because I can see my, my in-laws who struggle to even get into a chair. They've lost a lot of the mobility. So the older we get, the more we really have to work at maintaining that mobility. Doesn't mean putting your foot behind your head. You know, there's no health benefit to that. But can you get up off the floor? Can you turn your head and look behind you when you're backing up your car? Can you look both ways when you cross the street? Can you get in another bathtub? These are the type of mobility issues you need just to live your life or play your sports or do whatever you love to do. I don't want to necessarily go right now into the into your ideas about functional yoga, but rather to suggest that this is another type of functional yoga. That is, how, that is what I'm hearing you say is, how does yoga function in your life? Does it allow you to be in your life in a way that is things are better? And I, I'm with you that strength is not fully balanced. The, the, the practices in yoga, that is, whatever style, do not necessarily give us a balance of strength in our in our body there are certain muscles that are used much more than others around particular joints such as the elbows and the knees certain muscles somewhat languishing on obscurity such as the biceps brachii just doesn't get nearly the work if you will as the triceps and with endurance uh, from personal experience as well as talking to gazillions of people um, you can do all the vigorous vinyasa flow or stanga vinyasa you want but if that is all you do for cardiovascular health um, in terms of of aerobic conditioning, uh, you'll be uh, you'll will not get the qualities of conditioning that you would get through something like uh, cycling, running, swimming, vigorous hiking, and other such things. And mobility is a fascinating one to me. I want to maybe go there a little bit with you because uh, you talked uh, initially about how an Ashtanga Vinyasa, whether it was a David Swinson or Tim Miller, both beautiful teachers and human beings, I think, beautiful human beings. Um, it, but, but generally in that style and in much of the Krishnamacharya lineage, certainly with Ayengar and Ashtanga Vinyasa, we're given sort of idealized forms with the idea that we'll all be put into those forms. The same is true of most styles of yoga, Bikram or whatever it is. Here's the pose and now do do that. And so there's 7 billion of us and like you've highlighted already, we're unique in all kinds of ways, including our, including our personalities, our values, but just at the physical level. Um, the differences in bone structures and, and qualities of mobility. And we have people who are teenagers and hypermobile and teenagers who are not, who have great restrictions in range of motion. And so all through our lives. And so just on that, I'd love to hear a little bit more from you about, about practicing in ways that are, uh, uh, that are right for the, the person, for the unique individual who is doing that practice. Yeah, um, everybody's different. This is, uh, whenever I say that, I was already reminded of a Monty Python movie. I don't know if you ever saw The Life of Brian, where there's, there's this guy named Brian who's falsely accused of being the Messiah. 
and this crowd of people are following him. And he kept telling all the people, no, go home. You're, you're unique. You don't need a teacher. And they all yell back, we are unique as one voice. <laughs> but it's true. Everybody is unique. There, there's no way one pose is going to work for everybody. And there's no body that can do all the poses in Mr. Yanger's book, Light on Yoga. So understanding that uniqueness, we, we kind of see it on the outside. When you look at two people, you'll see they look different. Their faces are different. Their voices sound different. But for some reason, we think they're all the same on the inside. And I think part of that is because if you read an anatomy book, you look in there and there'll be a drawing of the human body. And the femur will have a certain shape and the, you know, the humerus will have a certain shape. And somehow we get in our heads this map that all bones look like this, like that skeleton hanging in the corner. That's just a composite of dozens, maybe even hundreds of cadavers. Nobody actually looks like that person in the anatomy book. But if that is your mental map, that everybody looks like this, we all look the exact same on the inside, then it's probably logical to think then there should be one way to do a pose. But that, that's a fallacy. There's not one way to walk. You watch people walking down the street, there'll be thousands of different ways people walk. The question should be, is it functional? Can they get across the street? Do they hurt themselves? Or are they completely happy and optimal from themselves? So yeah, this is, I think, a starting point for teachers is to recognize that every student is unique. Just like a starting point for a doctor or a therapist is every patient is unique. And just because the last patient had this, forget that. You now have this person in front of you. What do you need to do with her? So uniqueness, I think, is an important realization in medicine and in yoga. I'm with you. And as there are all too many specialized physicians who wish to treat us according to the formulas that are given for a particular condition rather than fully appreciating the whole human being who is in front of that, that, that physician and so, thus some of the insights of complementary and integrative medicine to look at whole human beings and unique human beings. Um, I'm very, I'm very much uh, with you on this. And, and in my teacher trainings, when we cover anatomy, one of the exercises as a part of this is we do a, an observational exercise. Everyone partners up with someone else, and we look systematically up the front of the body, the back of the body, from the side of the body. And at the end of it, I ask, okay, raise your hand if you have, uh, we'll call it perfect anatomy. You look like the picture in the book. And thousands of people have gone through this, and not a single person has had what we might call, well, that perfect perfect posture so we are beautifully unique and it's so important for us all as students students as well as teachers to get that idea so going with this a little bit more then uh, please uh, I, I love the section in your most recent book where you discuss functional yoga and so we now have a, a somewhat different idea of functional than you know walking across the street not that they're not related uh, or, or, or how it functions in your life making it easier to sit at your desk please uh, give us some more on on your idea of funct functional yoga Okay, well, usually we use that term, and again, I have to give credit to Paul Grilly for educating me on this. There, there's kind of like two broad camps, and again, always is always wrong, <laughs> but there's two broad camps that you may come across in the yoga world. One is an aesthetic approach to teaching yoga, and the second is a functional approach. Now, the aesthetic approach means how you look is very important. So you might have teachers come in and align the class into a perfect warrior two alignment where the knee is over the heel, the knee is pointing out over the second toe, not the third toe, it has to be right over the second toe. The back heel is turned in exactly 45 degrees. The arms are completely parallel with the shoulders. The palms are flat, the fingers are together. The thumb is short, not long. So you get all these precise alignment cues 
which will have the whole class looking identical. That's aesthetics. It's based on look. A functional approach would say, what's the point of doing warrior pose? What is our intention? So functional yoga has both an intention and then you pay attention. So we might say the intention of this pose is, and there could be many, today we're going to do it because we want to really work on the lower body strength. So we're going to strengthen the legs. Well, in that case, does it really matter where the shoulders are? Because if your intention is to really make the quads work hard and to stabilize the knee, engage the hamstrings and all that, then your directions are going to be quite different. So then you ask, well, pay attention. How do your quadriceps feel? Are your hamstrings touch the back of your leg? Is it soft or is it engaged? If it's soft, try pulling the heels together. If the top of the leg is a bit flaccid, try pulling the heels apart. So now you have an intention to strengthen the legs and you pay attention to see if you're getting the stress in the targeted areas. Now, aesthetic yoga is not bad. It's just have a different intention behind it. Some people like dancers, gymnasts, some athletes, they are marked on how well they look when they do their stuff. A dancer, they have to look very elegant. A gymnast has to look very good when they're doing the performance. So I'm not saying aesthetic has no place, but if your intention is to optimize health or to regain and maintain optimal health, then how you look is really irrelevant. What's important is what is your goal for this pose and are you achieving that goal? That is functional yoga in this definition. It's beautiful, and I wish to, I want to try to tease out a little bit more with this with you. I think it's a, a topic that we can we could really get into here. Um, I am with you on the problem that we have in yoga with trying to fit everyone into a particular mold, and then and often teachers who are quite adept with physical forms they often have dance or gymnastics backgrounds or just let's call it favorable genetics or they've been doing it for a long, 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 long time, whatever style it is, and they can show these these idealized forms and they say, okay, now everyone try to do this, whatever that it is. What a beautiful, uh, liberating idea to suggest, uh, to ask, to suggest to students, how do you feel? Make it feel better. Allow it to align with your alignment. How about aligning what you feel with your intentions? I love this, what you're suggesting and others as well. And this idea of really paying attention in it and playing with it in there. So the question though, is for me sometimes is where we all develop certain postural as well as mental and emotional habits. And sometimes when we go to the habitual, it is where we indeed find the comfort. That is, we ask our students, do what feels good. What they are doing in their bodies, in their minds, might very well feel good in that moment, but because it's aligned with a habit, rooted in a habit, it, well, it may or may not be. So if someone, for example, slumping a lot in their spine when they simply sit, and they say, well, it's comfortable. And we want to suggest sometimes, well, hmm, optimize, optimize health. Well, optimally, the spine has this, this shape. It does have, for most of us, a basic shape. Yes, there's variation, scoliosis, various pathologies. It's the uniqueness of human beings. But basic shapes that can suggest this is probably better for things like circulation, your nerves, your spinal discs. So how, where is the dialogue in there between what we might understand from, say, something of a scientific perspective of what is a healthy form in the body that some of those idealized postures, asanas might suggest to us, that is, better to sit upright to your spine than to slump, what I call slump asana, um, with, in conjunction with 
let it feel good. Tune in inside. You're your own best teacher. How, what, how do you, in your sense, again, is the, how does that dance happen in your sense of it? Well, first, let's unpack comfortable because I never, I'm trying to say never is never right. So I rarely ask the students to be comfortable. Maybe in Shavasana, they might be comfortable. Or maybe if you're teaching restorative yoga, you might seek comfort. But in any other style of yoga, comfort is not a goal. There's, a, there's always a downside to comfort. And to understand that, there's maybe we can spend a little sidebar on something called the anti-fragility curve. Comfort comes at the expense of health. If you imagine a, a, a graph, so I'm going to ask this, the listeners here to bear with me, but imagine there's a graph with a horizontal axis, which is increasing stress, and a vertical axis, which is increasing health. And at the origin, at zero, zero, there's no stress and there's no health. This is a condition of atrophy. In other words, if you don't use it, you're going to lose it. So right at the beginning, we need some stress. Now, as you start to stress the body, there's a nice kind of diagonal line that's gently rising. The more you stress, the more you increase health. Let's say the origin will label that A, point A. And then you keep stressing, you keep stressing until you reach a point called B. B is the danger zone. If you keep stressing it, you're going to break. Now, if you're fragile, any amount of stress will break you. If you drop a, a glass vase on the floor, it's fragile. It will shatter. If you drop a pewter beer mug on the floor that's made of tin, it'll just bounce. It's robust. Well, human beings are neither fragile nor robust. We're anti-fragile. All living organisms gain from being stressed. So you need some amount of stress to a limit. Everything has a limit. So as you go from A to B, you're becoming healthier because you're getting more stress. Well, as you apply that stress, it's not comfortable. Comfortable would be no stress. No stress usually is not healthy. So what we want to do is we want to play this edge. We never want to be at B or go past B because that's where death and destruction awaits. But as long as we're somewhere on this curve, we're gaining health because we're applying a stress. And that's not comfortable. There's many examples I could give, but let's just take arch supports. It's almost impossible now to find shoes that don't have arch supports. But the human foot is meant to have an arch. That, that springiness of the arch, as you all know, it's what allows us to be the walking, running, jumping primate. We deform the foot as we step, and then we rebound, and it's the fascia that pushes us back forward. So our muscles don't have to do as much work. It's the rebounding quality of the arch. Now, some people may have a trauma. They might damage their ligaments or the arch, and maybe for a little while, they need some support there. But you want to get rid of that support as much as possible. Because once you have an arch support, you've gone to the origin. You've got no stress, therefore no health. That's when the tissues start to atrophy. The body says, oh, we're not using these materials. Let's recycle them and put them somewhere else. So you want to get off the arch support as much as possible. But arch supports are comfortable. It feels nice to have that support there. But comfort is at the expense of health. And as I say, I could go through dozens and dozens of examples of this, which I do in my, my books. So in yoga... I'm not seeking comfort for the student. If somebody's slouching and because that's comfortable, that's the way they've always done it, well, that's not a goal. If the targeted area is to build the, the stability of the spine and its mobility, then yes, you're right. We've got to bring it back to its kind of natural curves, the four curves and maybe three. Some people don't have 
lordosis in the neck. Most people do, but about a quarter of the population don't. They have a straight neck and it's not a pathology, it's just the way they are. But yeah, we'll want to strengthen that. Now, as you sit up taller, that's not comfortable anymore. I'm not used to it. Great. You're now doing a functional approach to yoga. We're targeting the spine. What are you feeling? I'm working. I'm having to work my muscles. Great. You're getting the right area. So yeah, beware of this comfort. I don't think any yin yoga teacher is asking the students to be comfortable. We don't want them to be so uncomfortable, however, that they can't stay in the pose. So there's some sort of a Goldilocks position here. Not too much discomfort, but not too little either. You want to be right in that, that middle zone where you're getting the benefits and you can linger longer in the pose. So we're not trying to get maximum. That's, that's young thinking. Now, athletes do try to get the maximum. Athletes need to ask the most out of their body, but that comes at the expense of health. Some of the most broken bodies you'll ever see are retired dancers and, and gymnasts and athletes. I'll just underline it. Someone I mentioned earlier being Joel, Joel Kramer, whose 1978 article in Yoga Journal, Yoga is Self-Transformation, and a prior article in 77, A New Look at Yoga, Joel gives us his idea of playing the edge that was more popularized by Eric Schiffman in his book, Yoga, The Spirit and Practice of Moving to Stillness. Paul and others very much study with Eric learning that technique and this idea of, well, playing the edge in what? Well, a pose. And so you did mention in inviting students to be in a pose or the pose. And so I'm going to assume that I'm going to play with this with you a little bit here, that, that you're suggesting a certain well, form. Maybe you even demonstrate and say, this is the form of a caterpillar or whatever it happens to be. And then I'm with you, by the way. That, and part of this relates to Wolf's Law when it comes to bones and all, and stressing bones and keeping them healthy. I, I'm generally with you on this, but I want to tease it out a little bit more here, Bernie. And that is so... Um, and I'm not suggesting that we're always suggesting to our students that they have maximum comfort. Again, true to Joel, the idea of playing the edge is that we move in some way, some range of motion or whatever it is, and we come to a place of, I call it the aha, like, oh, okay, something's happening here. I feel something. And I go further with that towards perhaps what the teacher is showing, and it's, uh, uh-uh. <laughs> it's, it's point B on your graph. It's like, uh-uh. Am I going to get hurt, burned out? Is there no capacity in that point of refinement? So I back away, but not all the way. So I stay between the aha and the uh-uh and doing what I hear you saying, feel. What are we encouraging our students to feel? A, 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 a continuous movement towards that B, towards the uh-uh, but not going so far out of it? Are you playing in there like with breath, with subtle movement to refine in that form in such a way that you are, as you put it, and I'm with you, uh, stressing? We'll come back to the idea of stress and de-stressing in yoga eventually because we live in a stressful world. But is, is this what I'm hearing from you? Yeah, and again, we have the two different styles of yoga practice here, roughly yin and yang. So in the yin style, no, we're not continually trying to go for more and more. Once you get to an edge, like you're close to B, you don't want to be over, but you want to be somewhere there. Then you just linger. You marinate. You just soak in the juiciness of that pose. If the edge recedes, and this can happen because the tissues can relax, you can get this internal relaxation of the, the fascia or the, the muscles. It can be neurological. It can be the form of water changing its state. It can be the releasing of the creeping, if you will, of the fascial membranes. There's that letting go. Now your edge is receded. So then you can follow the edge and go a bit deeper. But sometimes you, we just stay there because we're not trying to get to the maximum range of motion. We just want to get to where there's a stress. And then if the stress ebbs away, then go to the next edge. 
So in this way, in yin yoga, since you're there for five, six, ten minutes, depending on you and the pose, there's a long time for things to change. You're paying attention. When you notice that letting go, then you can go to the next edge. But sometimes the body goes the other way. B comes closer to you and you realize, I better not stay here much longer. Someone who's pregnant, maybe she's going to be only staying there for three minutes. Normally, you know, a couple of months ago, she could stay for five or six. But today her body's changing, her head's changing. Or maybe you're recovering from COVID or some other thing. You can't go where you used to. And the body's saying, okay, time to back off. Well, the only way you'll know that is by paying attention. So we have the intention, I need to stress this area of my body. Then you pay attention, is this the appropriate amount of stress? If not, should I go further? Or should I be backing off? Should I come out? None of these dictate what you should look like in the pose. Now, I'm not anti-alignment. I think alignment can be very important, especially in the young postures, where you have dynamic movement into and out of the poses. But what I'm anti is universal alignment. There is no one alignment that's going to work for everybody. And to have a whole class of 20 people look identical in down dog, there's something wrong with that kennel. Because all the dogs in the kennel look different. So I think my challenge as a teacher is how do I get all the students to find their down dog? Find their alignment in that pose. And we do that through experimentation. I will guide the class through different options. Hands wide, hands together, hands apart, fingers pointing in and out, feet together, feet apart, toes in, toes out. Let them figure out what their down dog's like. Now they know their alignment. And now whenever I say down dog to them, I don't have to guide them anymore. Maybe I'll remind them once or twice, but it's their dog. So I'm not anti-alignment, I'm anti-universal alignment. But in yin, we're not really worrying about that because we're not bearing external stresses so much, like in a caterpillar. It's just a seated forward fold. Should the legs be together? Should the legs be apart? I don't know. I don't care. What's it feel like? The target area is the back of the body. Are you feeling some stresses there? And then, okay, what sort of stresses? Is it too much? Is it not enough? And then you have to modify and go from there. I'm with you and think that in yang yoga, it's not always just dynamic. That is, there is also static yang, if you will, to think ayengar yoga. Of course, they do move. Uh, how do they get into the posture anyway? Bikram yoga, uh, how do they get into the asana? They, they do hold those for some time. So it's not just in dynamism that we have held forms and where alignment is important. And regarding alignment and other aspects of practice, I, I find there's a tremendous value of an insightful teacher in helping in dialogue with the student to help that student to better perhaps understand some of what they're experiencing, why perhaps turning their hands in or out might work for them, that it relates to the different, for example, shapes of their bones or conditions of their joints or strength or weaknesses in their tissues in some way. So I think there is a lot of value there in the role of a teacher to observe and try to understand through listening, observing and listening, the uniqueness of those students and then to share what insight they have, ideally based on some study of, of the body. And I think an excellent place for students to begin that study of the body would be in a trilogy of books such as Your Body, Your Yoga, Your Spine, Your Yoga, and Your Upper Body, Your Yoga, written by Bernie Clark. So on that kind of how do we know what's happening in their insight I think that kind of study is important, and I would guide students indeed towards that kind of set of resources rather than those sources that say, here's the pose, 
here's the here's the universal form of the human body. Here's what you want to try to get your students to do. Here are the muscles that are working or not working or agonist or antagonist, and here's how that all works. So, again, I thank you for that kind of of in of insight with this. Another little piece, backing up a little bit, back to those feet and those arches. Um, arches are amazing. Uh, we do have a genetic endowment that somewhat affects whether we will have, let's call it soft arches or hypertonic arches. Um, their musculature does matter. It's not only the plantar aponeurosis, a type of fascia there, the very strong, high collagen, tennyson, fiber structure at the bottom of the foot that gives us that spring, that beautiful spring you described. It's also affected by some muscles like peroneus longus and tibialis posterior that link down around the ankle joints, those medial and lateral malleosus bones and give us some lift there to those arches. And there are things we can do to build those arches. Some suggest, indeed, that we're not born with arches. We're born with a genetic predisposition, predisposition to have certain kinds of arch conditions. But we develop arches through the act of walking and the emotional conditions of toddlerhood, of being a little one. <laughs> As we're growing from being knee-high to a grasshopper to becoming a little boy or girl or person, we develop our arches, and the emotional conditions of that experience, some would suggest, could contribute to whether we develop more or less robust feet or soft feet or whatever it is. So where I go with this is arch support, I'm with you. Ideally, I suppose we'd all walk barefoot. Uh, I know many runners who run barefoot, and they, they have beautiful arches as a result. But sometimes there are conditions there where a prop is helpful because without it, at a certain stage of pathology, we could describe it, or it's just to say of the natural condition of that person's unique feet, their arches are weak, their inner ankles drop, it causes problems through the ankle joint, the knee joint, the hip, and the spine as a consequence of what's happening in their feet. And just as a block or a strap can be helpful in certain asanas, so arch supports, I think, can be beneficial to people in certain conditions, even as I hope in yoga we teach them things like padabanda as a great way of developing that arch integrity. And if they have really hypertonic arches, I hope we're encouraging them to rub those feet like crazy or better yet, get somebody else to rub them for them. Yeah, I agree. Again, never is never right. There's always going to be some people who need arch support. What I was commenting about was almost everybody's shoes today has arch supports. Not just those who have a foot pathology, but people who have completely normal feet. They're wearing arch supports. And it's comfortable because now you've got something else taking that stress of walking. But that comfort comes at the expense of the health of the arch because the arch, as you pointed out, is designed to flex. So if we stop allowing it to flex, there's no way it's going to maintain its optimal health level. So yeah, there's always going to be the pathological cases where you have to be careful. Coming back to the questions, the matters of stress, uh, we live in a stressful <clears throat> world. We probably always have. I like to suggest right. to, to myself, to my friends, to my students, we li- we have stressful conditions, and that let's call it a neurological and emotional and mental level. That we don't necessarily have to have a stressful response. Sometimes it's healthy. Flight or fight can save us from dangerous situations. But what a wonderful thing to be thing to be able to relax. And I think a lot of people do come to yoga for the purpose of just deeply relaxing, letting go of the emotional and mental and physical stress that they feel accumulating in their tissues, in their body minds, and it's a part of life. And at the same time, there's this other idea of stress. We'll call it a cousin, a very close interrelated cousin, connected cousin of stress where if again, you know, use it or lose it, yes, as you put it, as others yeah. would put it as a 
as the way I put it. And it, so we have this, on the one hand, let go, and just let go, and there's a beauty in that. Indeed, the Jain approach to yoga is a-yoga, not yoga. Do right. not just be, right. just be there. And then we have intentional yoga. <laughs> have a practice that includes creating stress that keeps you vital. I wish you to just to, to share a bit more on that or a lot more on that, if you would, please. There are two types of stress. There is distress, which is what most people think of when they think of stress. If you go past that point B on the fragility curve, you're into distress. And most people think of stress as a bad word because in our culture, we tend to be overstressed. However, another way to look at it is we're not overstressed, we're underrested. But the second form of stress is called eustress, E-U stress. This is the healthy stress. So again, on that anti-fragility curve, this is the stress that goes from A to B. That's healthy stress. If you go past B, you're now in distress. So we want eustress. We need to exercise. If you don't like the word stress, just think of the word exercise every time you hear stress. You need to exercise. Yes, you can do too much, but you can also do too little. So there's a yin and yang element to this. You need to stress, and then you need to rest. Resting in science is called the refractory period. You need to stress your muscles. So you're working, you're weightlifting, you do cross training or something. One day you're working upper body, next day you're working lower body while your upper body is resting. Studies of um, more primal cultures like the Hazda, famous people in, in Africa who seem to get studied so much now, you wonder if they're really as primal as people think because there's so many Westerners interviewing them. They are the ones who walk 20 kilometers a day but most of the time, they're just squatting on the ground. They're just resting. They rest more than we do in the Western world. They walk more than we do, too. So they're doing the stress, but it's eustress. It's not distress. They're not running from saber-toothed tigers. They're not being chewed up by their boss or they got an angry customer on the phone. They're just doing their daily life, and then they're spending most of their time chilling. And that's, that's the in part. So they got you know, a couple of hours a day of yang part, and most of the time it's yin. So you need both. You need the, the eustress, and you need the refractory period, where the tissues that you just used become more usable. So you know, life's a balance. And one breath at a time, we ideally keep breathing our way into that balance. We, we often find balances in life, it would seem, within certain frames of understanding, certain, certain widely accepted ideas about the way things are in the world. We accumulate knowledge. I was kind of setting the table at the beginning here today before I fully introduced you, Bernie. There's a philosopher of science you and I have discussed briefly sometimes in the past, Thomas Kuhn, who wrote a, a really right. important book uh, a couple generations ago, the title, uh, the, the Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And he spoke of paradigms and paradigm shifts. And so we have a certain paradigm of understanding. Isaac Newton certainly helped to establish, reinforce a certain paradigmatic understanding of the nature of the physical world. And little by little, through incremental discovery, investigation, sometimes speculation, playing around in the scientific laboratory or looking at a clock at the train station, one comes eventually to new and different understandings. As say, for example, uh, what was his name? Albert Einstein did, and he, as he <laughs> eventually developed a, a special theory of relativity that, well, as to say, chipped away at the, its existing paradigm. And eventually, so, and it, sometimes that new idea can seem altogether what we might call, well, fringe science. 
and fringe science can get a bad rap that is on the fringes. It's out there towards the edge. And so sometimes right. fringe science falls over the edge and it becomes what we might call pseudoscience. That is, it's not based on what we might call, uh, well, observable, testable facts or something that you can verify. Right. It's still for very much in the imagination. But without that imagination, without the new experimentations, without Einstein looking at that clock in relationship to the train moving through and trying to get an understanding of time and space and their interrelationships, we're still stuck on on Newtonian physics, which does great in understanding things in a gravitational force field, but doesn't do so well in understanding some things that, that transcend that realm that is that, that quantum physics gives us. And so where I go with this is we have a very common accepted body of anatomical and physiological science. And there is a vast network of scientists at work right now in refining that. And from time to time, new and even, even somewhat radical ideas emerge that suggest the old framework, the old paradigm might not explain it all. And maybe it never does. But sometimes those fringe ideas might be pseudoscience, and sometimes those fringe ideas might be precisely the ones that are leading us to the new paradigm. A variety of people, and I'll just highlight the, the anatomy change work of Thomas Myers and others, there's the idea of a fascial system that has emerged that is not accepted as science within the larger anatomical scientific world. There are significant scientists, anatomical scientists, working on this and putting forth ideas of, of the significance of fascia for force transmission in ways that go beyond the understandings of the dominant paradigm of anatomy and biomechanics, and this then comes into, well, initially into Rolfing structural integration, but also into physical practices such as yoga, Pilates, gyrotonics, and other forms of dance, of other forms where fascia is considered to be deserving of much closer attention on just one last piece of this is there's a tendency out there for a lot of people, especially in the yoga world, to say the fascia as though it's just one thing, and we know there are lots of different types of fascia, that the fascia in your skin is very different than that fascia there at the bottom of the foot, that strong spring, and that's quite different from the fascia that surrounds your liver. And so we have different, well, right. at least a dozen different types of fascia with different histologies, different compositions of collagen and tenosin and elastin and other characteristics that give it its uniqueness. Please help us better understand fascia, your understanding of fascia and how it relates to yoga, and how it might relate to structures of scientific revolution. I know it's a lot. Please take your time yeah. and talk for as long as you wish okay. and whatever you wish to get into this. Please, Bernie. Well, let's start back with good old Thomas Kuhn and the structure of scientific revolution. You're right. He coined the term paradigm to kind of explain the accepted model of the way the, the universe works. I like to use the term map because I think for the layperson, it's a... It's a metaphor that's very accessible. When you see a map of a city, like I live here in Vancouver, Canada, if I have a map of Vancouver, it will show me where all the streets are and the names of the streets. And maybe this particular map also shows me where all the yoga studios are. And I might think, okay, that map is very good. That's a good map of Vancouver. But of course, I know the map is not the territory. This map is not Vancouver. It's a representation or a conceptualization of Vancouver usually based on somebody's experience. It used to be a cartographer who'd walk the street and take measurements and wrote down his things. Now it's satellites and Google doing it. But it's, it's a representation of reality. It's not reality. So that's one of the most important things to realize with science. 
All of our theories, our hypotheses, our paradigms are not meant to be real. They're not truth. They're meant to be useful. The point of a map is to get you from A to B. Now, somebody else can come along like Einstein and say, well, this map is kind of useful for yoga studios or yoga students who want to find the studios, but I also want to find a coffee shop. So I need a map that shows where all the Starbucks are. So he creates a new map. He includes the map that was proven to be useful, but he adds a new location called Starbucks. Now his map is more useful. Now we can have somebody else who says, I'm looking for golf courses. Your map is useless to me. It's not right at all. And somebody else is saying, well, we don't like golf. We just want to do yoga. Your map is useless. And you get people fighting wars over whose map is right. Neither map is right. Neither map is truth. Both maps are a representation of reality. The point of a map is to be useful. So we have our theories, our maps of the human body. Anatomy books are just maps. There's somebody's experience of what the human body looks like. And they show the yoga studios, which may be the circulatory system. They show the Starbucks, which may be the nervous system. And they may show the muscular system, but they don't show much of the fascial system. So now we have a new map coming up here that's showing fascia. And now people are starting to argue, no, your map's not real. Your map's not real. Again, no map is real. The question is, are these maps useful? Now, having said all that, we're now evolving this whole concept of what fascia is. It used to be, back in the 1990s and earlier, fascia was just a miscellaneous category tacked on to the end of something called connective tissues. Connective tissues were tissues that connected parts of the body, like bones, like tendons, ligaments. The blood system was a connective tissue because it went through various parts of the body. And then anything that wasn't all those four was called fascia. And it was just the packing material, like <clears throat> if you order a book from Amazon, you open up the book and there's all that foam chips in there. That's just packing material. That's useless. Let's just throw it out. We'll ignore that. But then about 20 years ago, people started to realize <clears throat> maybe there's a little bit more to this packing material than we thought, because it, it seems to be everywhere. It's not just in the empty spaces of the body. There are no empty spaces. It's lining the, the muscles. It's inside the muscles. It's lining the organs. It's inside the viscera. It's lining the bones. It's inside the bones. It wraps all the blood vessels. It wraps all the nerves. It's right underneath the skin. And now they're starting to find almost everywhere they look, there's some sort of a connective tissue fascia thing. You're right. Today, we can say a fascia, but the most recent attempt to define fascia, and it's an ongoing challenge. Every two years, we get a different definition. They now say there's a fascial system, and then there is a fascia. So there's not just one definition anymore. The fascial system is this interconnectedness, three-dimensional body stocking that we all wear. And a fascia may just be an expansion of collagen or elastin fibers. So <clears throat> I think that the term is getting away from us a bit. Maybe we need some other term because we're starting to put so many things onto fascia now that it's becoming a bit unwieldy. Before it was too narrowly defined, maybe now we're getting it to be too broadly defined. But in any case, there are new, new maps being made now, what fascia is and does. Fascia includes living cells. That wasn't the case 20 years ago. Fascia was simply packing material, but there are cells inside fascia. There are fasciocytes. There is uh, fibroblasts. There are myofibroblasts. There's tenocytes. There's all sorts of 
cells that produce the fascia. There are nerves inside fascia. There are 10 times more nerve endings in the fascia than the muscle that the fascia surrounds. And a lot of what we think might be muscle pain is actually the fascia reacting to stresses inside the muscle. So we have nerve endings that measure pressure, that measure mechanical stresses, that measure pH levels, that can also nociceptors that will measure pain. And just one example that everyone kind of knows, if you bang your shin bone against the table, it hurts. You know, we've all kind of barked our, our shin. The first thing you'll do, you'll automatically rub it. Now, it turns out that the nociceptor, the nerve endings that send pain to the brain, they also send the signal of pressure to the brain, but they can only send one signal at a time. So they have to decide, am I going to send the signal of pressure or am I going to send the signal of pain? So if you feel pain and you rub it, now the nerve endings say, okay, I'm going to send pressure now. So you no longer feel it, which I remember telling my, my son when he fell down on the ground, just rub it off, rub it off. And it works because the fascial receptors can only send one signal at a time. So yeah, fascia now includes living cells, nerve endings, it includes water, it includes the fibers. So you have the collagen, the stiff fibers, and you have the elastin, the very flexible fibers. And depending on where it is, you got more of one than the other, like our ears, a lot of elastin in there. We, we can move our ears around. The disc between our vertebrae, not much elastin there. You don't want those moving around. So depending on where this fascia is, it has different shapes, different degrees of water, different levels of nerve endings, different levels of cells. It's quite a fascinating, fascinating uh, place. Now you mentioned Tom Myers. Um, Tom has come up with this idea of these anatomy trains, this continuity of fascia throughout the body. And he famously defined 12 continuities where the fascia might envelop a muscle and then go to a bone cover the joint and then go to another muscle and go to another bone and another joint. And he mapped that out. And again, it's a map, not reality. None of this is real. It's a map that explains certain things. It explains his experience as a rolfer. So again, the point of the map isn't to be true. Don't believe that there's actually 12 anatomy trains in your body. Just like don't believe that the map of Vancouver is Vancouver. It's a representation. Now, the value of science versus these alternate facts you mentioned before, if you're really dealing with the real science, not some pseudoscience, whenever we come up with a theory, a map, the first thing we want to do is, if this is true, how would I prove that it's true? And we do that through something the philosopher Karl Popper made this famous by trying to falsify it. Einstein came up with his theory of general relativity, and it said that Big masses in the sky will warp space. Therefore, it'll change the light. They wanted to, okay, he's made that prediction. Can we prove it wrong? And so the next eclipse, after he came up with this thing, they were going to see it was the sun was going to be behind a star. When the moon went from the sun, the sky was going to be black. We shouldn't see that star because it's right behind the sun. But the sun being a big massive object would bend the light rays. And through something called gravitational lensing, we would actually see that star from behind the sun. 1918, we did this experiment, found out he was true. Had that result been wrong, his theory would have been proven wrong. So the way you know something is scientific is to ask the person giving you the theory, okay, how would I prove that wrong? How would you prove that wrong? And if they can't give you an experiment to prove it wrong, it's not a scientific theory. If you have somebody who's a flat earther, 
ask them, how would I disprove your theory that the Earth is flat? And if they can't give you a, uh, an experiment to run that would disprove their theory, it's not a scientific theory. It's just a speculation, an idea. So we got these ideas in, in anatomy, and you can ask, okay, well, how would I prove Tom Meyer's wrong? Well, science lives on replicable, can't even say the word. You have to be able to repeat it. It has to be replicable. <laughs> can't say the word. You have to be able to repeat it. So other people doing the same thing should find the same result. And some people have tried to reproduce Tom's thing. In the last attempt I saw, they definitely agreed with four of his major lines. Yes, these are there. Anybody looking will find them. Another couple, they, they were a little bit equivocal about the other ones. They said, it really depends on how you carve up the body. They may be there if you carve it this way. They may not be there if you carve it that way. So, yeah, that, but the point of the map, again, is not to be true. It's to be useful. And many people find Tom Meyer's books very helpful, very useful for what they want to do. That's a lot. I want to try to respond <laughs> or engage you yeah. with a lot of this. That is, so I'm with you that the map is not the territory. And we have at the same time many maps, and I would hope as well that ultimately they're useful to us. We can also see that there are some maps that are wrong. There right. were maps that showed uh, a flat earth at one point that didn't conceive, describe a sphere. I want to tease out a few things with this. And I am with you ultimately that we want our maps to be useful and practical in our lives. And ideally, our maps are somewhat, well, rooted in what we might consider to be truth or accurate information as close as we can get to it at least i, I want to map that right. when i'm trying to get to i wouldn't go to starbucks necessarily but to a cafe somewhere in vancouver uh, maybe starbucks um i would want to get there in a certain way that's accurate and not get lost right. let's say so i want those maps so someone puts a map out there and as a matter of science I want them to show me some evidence that it's correct rather than my being held to prove that it's wrong. I want them to present a body of evidence, especially if I have a prior understanding of how to get from point A to B or whatever it is. I have a map in my imagination or whatever it is. Um, I want them to show me why their new map might be more useful to me. And to do so, I would hope that they would give me some evidence for why that is so that I can then understand it as well as perhaps flip it around and say, oh, now I know what to look for and possibly showing why they are wrong. So coming back around to fascia for a moment, I just want to start with, we divide the body into these like, you know, 10 or sometimes it would be described as 11 physiological systems. I, right. I, and I get the value of those distinct, concepts, maps, if you will, the neurological system, an endocrine system, a reproductive system, etc., a, mus a musculoskeletal system, the major systems as described in the science of physiology in which I'm with you, that fascia was always kind of seen as this add-on part of connective tissue, but not seen as something as it is seen today by many people, including Thomas Myers and, and others. Right. Fascia, and I appreciate your description, um, has lots of different characteristics, different yeah. compositions, different roles in the body. And that, again, the fascia of the skin is quite different from some of the, what we might call the packing material. Very different than the IT band, the iliotibia band, a strong right. uh, collagenous structure down the sides of the legs that gives structural support to the knee and the side of the leg from the hip. So we have these very different qualities um, of fascia. We also have very different qualities of innervation in the different types of fascia. 
and it is, and they are, as you described, sensory nerves. They're not motor nerves, and they don't have the capacity right. for motor action, even as they are affected by the motor actions of those things that they are encasing and sleeving and encompassing, as you've, as you've described. I'm concerned sometimes where we take a little bit of insight, such as the myofibroblasts in the thoracolumbar sick structures, the lower back, Schleip and others having done some studies of rats to look at that, to see that there's contractibility there. And then some folks saying, aha, we found this one little piece of information that says, suggests that there is contractibility there. And this then gets generalized to the larger body and becomes a way, a way of supporting the idea of, of um, myofascial force transmission through the body. Rather than saying, okay, that's there and works in that way, and there are also these other force sources of force transmission through the body, bones themselves, muscles themselves, acting in concert with the fascia that enslaves them. But to sort of, where I'm going with this is to have a little concern, or a lot, about the highlighting of fascia into what is seen as yet another system, rather than being a part of the integrated whole of it all where it has different roles and that might cause some questions on whether it is systematic as, as is described by many. And then arising right. to a higher level with these days with, uh, what's his name, Stephen, uh, today will come to me in a moment, uh, the idea of bios integrity, bio-tensegrity, Stephen Levine. Levine, excuse me, thank you. Bio, uh, Stephen Levine's concept of bios integrity, borrowing from Buckminster Fuller's concept of, of in architecture, in, in, in materials construction, of architecture, such as a geodesic dome, where we have this idea of a spring-like structure of the body giving us uh, right. a better explanation to force and mobility and structure and stability than, say, the pre-existing paradigms have done. I know I've just given you a lot there, so I'm going to be quiet, listen to your thinking about this, and we can go a little further with this if you'd like. Well, I agree that we have to be careful with the reductionist approach to understanding the world. The analogy I often use is that of a rainbow. When you look at a rainbow, you can see the color red. And you can see the color orange and yellow and green and blue. But you can't tell me where red ends and orange begins because it's a gradual spectrum. So even though we might say the rainbow's got five colors, six colors, seven colors, depending on what culture you're raised in, they have different colors in the rainbow. That's just an abstraction. It's another, you've created a map. The rainbow is not like seven Lego bricks of different colors. Red becomes orange. In the same way, our neural system becomes the cardiovascular system, which becomes the muscular system, which becomes the endocrine system. These, these little silos that we have in medicine, where we have people studying these different systems, is just a reductionist approach. It's, it's um, a nice way to understand the body, but we should never confuse it for the body. It's just another map. And so we create these different layers of maps. And in the same way, I might have a map here in Vancouver that will show me where the golf course is. But then I want to decide, am I going to go golfing tomorrow? I'll check the weather map of Vancouver. And it's going to tell me it's going to rain tomorrow, so maybe I don't go. Now, which map is right? The weather map or the street map? They show different things. They have different intentions. So all these maps of the body that we have are just abstractions. Don't ever confuse them for reality, because none of those maps are reality. So I agree with you totally there, that these 10 or 12 different maps that we describe the body, 
They're just a pedagogy. They're just a teaching device. They're not real, but they're useful. And again, that's the point. But they have their problems. Because just like my Starbucks map didn't show me the golf courses, no map shows you the whole territory because it would have to be the territory. So Einstein's map was a better map than Newton. Newton was good 99.999% of the time, but it couldn't predict or it couldn't explain a couple of things that were happening like the orbit of Mercury. Einstein could, but he still has some problems. He can't explain quantum gravity effects. So you'll never get a map that's completely the territory. It would just be too big. But what we have in these silos in medicine is quite interesting. And it was Robert Slife who explained this to me that, yeah, we've got these particular cells in our fascia called myofibroblasts. Now, fibroblast is like a little spider that spins out the spider web of fascia. But it's also sitting in the middle of this web in some particular fibroblasts called myofibroblasts. They have the ability to contract and they can tighten up the fiber web, the spider web. And that's useful if we get a cut. We have myofibroblasts that swim into there. They start to lay down the scab, the scar tissue, and they contract to make the size of the wound smaller. So there's less bad guys can get in, less bacteria. And also it's quicker to heal a smaller area than a bigger area. So we've known about these myofibroblasts for quite a while and the fact they can contract. Not like a muscle, it's not quick. It can take hours and days for them to really contract, but they do. Now, we know if you put a bunch of this chemical called TGF-beta-1, now, the listeners, don't worry, this won't be on the test, transforming growth factor beta-1. If you put that into a petri dish with a lot of these myofibroblasts, they start to contract and they start to reproduce more quickly. Now, over in this other silo called immunology, the immunologists have known for a long time that when we get an infection, say like you're getting a flu virus coming in, the body will react by secreting a bunch of TGF-beta-1, which stimulates the production of killer T cells, white blood cells that will go and attack the virus. Now, they didn't know what the fascia people were discovering over here, but when they got together and they realized, have you ever noticed that when you get a cold or a flu, you feel stiff and achy? Well, that's a natural reaction to the immune system getting all this TGF-beta-1 and the fascial system tightening up so that you don't feel like you're going to go out and run a marathon today. You need to stay home. You need to conserve your energy. Let the energy go to the immune system because it needs to produce at the factory a lot of these antibodies. So we're designed to feel crappy when we've got an infection. That will slow us down. So this whole system works beautifully between the silos because red becomes orange. The immune system becomes the fascial system. And it's arbitrary to say, oh, this is an immune response. No, this is a fascial response. It's a body response. And so you get these triggers between these different silos. That's where the fascinating stuff's occurring. Yes, fascia can contract. And it's part of the immune system. And it's part of the nervous system. And it's part of all these other systems because it's all one rainbow. I'm very excited by the ongoing research regarding fascia where it shows uh, where there's evidence that it can have contraction even though that it's not what we typically think of as contraction in our body where we do it through our voluntary 
actions of our neuromuscular system, motor neurons contracting muscle fibers to contract the muscle. But no less, there are tissues in our bodies that contract and release owing to other circumstances, including as you've described with the immune system. And I think it's fantastic to see this ongoing research, the Fascia Research Society and others diving more deeply into it, and to see this touching more of mainstream science and medical science, anatomical and medical science. Mm -hmm. I'm going to suggest that rainbows are real. They can also be imaginary. And what a beautiful thing to be able to both have an imagination and to have a sense of what's, what we might describe as really real in the material realm. Um, but rainbows also have a, a really amazing place in myth, in mythology. Right. There are so many legends and you can look the world over because people have the world over seeing rainbows different meanings that are attached to them, different ways that they can be invoked to suggest things about everything from you know finding fortune to having a sense of the perfection of it all to a sense of bliss to how to shoot an arrow as an archer, uh, the various rainbow deities that we find in just about every type of mythology from Chinese to Mr. American, to you name it. So where I go here is to invite you with me here to go a little bit away from science for a moment Mm -hmm. you've written a beautiful book on myth and mythology and you're again dancing and I think a really beautiful way Bernie where you have a foot very strongly in a scientific understanding of the world and you have a foot very much in the realm of myth and meaning and significance in life and just would like to hear your thoughts about myth in your own life uh, how you invoke myth how you bring that into your teaching uh, your sense of perhaps the dance of myth and science as well, or whatever you'd like to talk about about this. I'd just love to hear to you, you, and also tell us about your book, the, the new version of the book uh, on myth, if you would, please. Well, thank you, Mark. Yes, myths fascinate me, and they always have. Um, but really, I owe my understanding of how myths can be explained mostly to a guy named Joseph Campbell, a wonderful American mythologist, and, of course, Carl Jung, the depth psychologist of the last century, and one way to explain it is you've probably seen this, the statue of Shiva dancing. And he's dancing on a dwarf named Advija. And Joseph Campbell asked the question, what does Shiva dancing on the dwarf Advija mean to an accountant in Detroit, Michigan? We didn't grow up with the stories of Shiva. We have no idea what the, these images symbolize. So one of the first things we have to understand is how to read a myth. How to understand a myth. Now, there's two different ways you can look at these different texts, like the Bible or the Vedas or the Upanishads. You can look at them as a record of his history, like your teacher who said, no, no, God created the whole world 6,000 years ago or 10,000 years ago. Or you can look at them as metaphor. In Joseph Campbell's view, is the appropriate way to look at a myth is a metaphor. All myths are metaphors. So what's a metaphor? Joseph was once asked on a, an interview, a radio interview. It's kind of a bit of a funny anecdote. The, the interviewer was very agnostic about myths. He just kept saying, myths are lies, myths are lies. And Campbell said, no, myths are metaphors. And it, this went on for half an hour. This went back and forth. Finally, toward the end of the show, Campbell asked him, look, myth is a metaphor. Give me a metaphor. And it was clear that this interviewer didn't know what a metaphor was. So he kind of stumbled and he said, okay, Johnny is like a deer. No, Johnny runs like a deer. And Campbell said, no, that's a simile. A metaphor is Johnny is a deer. 
And then the interviewer said, that's a lie. And they ran out of time and that's the way the show ended. If you look at these things factually, you'll miss the beauty of the myth. For instance, I was raised Catholic. In the Catholic story, 2000 some odd years ago, there was a baby born to a virgin in Bethlehem. Now, if you look at that as historically true and factual, it'd be like reading the headlines in the Washington Post. Virgin gives birth to son of God, dateline Bethlehem, zero. That would have a certain interest, but if instead if you looked at this metaphorically, what would it mean for you to bring forth God without anybody else's help? Whether you're male or female, it doesn't matter. You have God within you and you brought forth God. Then this story has a very different meaning. If you look at the Bible and you think the whole thing is historically true, then all we have to do is find one inconsistency and the whole thing collapses like a house of cards. And there are many inconsistencies in that book, things that completely are opposite in one verse versus another. So better is to look at all these stories as metaphors. So what is the metaphor of Shiva? What is the metaphor of, of reincarnation? What is the metaphor of the four stages of life? You can pick almost any topic. But in Campbell's view, there's four main functions of these mythologies. They serve to put us into accord with the world. The first is the cosmological function. It explains how this universe came to be. And all the myths have their origin stories. The next is the sociological function. They put you in accord with your society and your role in society and what your dharma is to be. Third, they put you into accord with your psychological existence, the how you go through the arc of aging, what you're like as a toddler, as a young child, as a teenager, as an adult, as someone who's a parent, as a grandparent, how to prepare you for the passage through the gray door at the end of life. That's the psychological function. And the final and probably the greatest function in mythology is the mystical function, which kind of explains what's it all about, Alfie? <laughs> Why are we here? What are we meant to be doing? So the myths are, are metaphors for life, and they have these four great functions to put you in accord with life in your society, your psychology, and the mystery that is life itself. The idea that we have this vast array of traditional stories um, is a beautiful one. There is a rich, rich literature in, in, the realm, in the realm of yoga, in the Indian panoply of deities, of, of uh, great other beings, of diamonds, of demons, of um, kings, of, other, of warriors, uh, as well as of what we might think of as common people. And we find these stories in the Ramayana, in the Puranas, in the Mahabharata, in that little chapter within there called the Bhagavad Gita, which also gives us ideas about, well, everything that you mentioned, the cosmological, to some degree the sociological. After all, Arjuna is a prince, and he is meant, he is meant to lead. He is, is his purpose. Uh, it's psychological. He is he is filled with fear and anxiety, and also the desire to do other things. And it's very, very much in the mystical realm as he makes a connection with well, his charioteer Krishna, um, who is a, who is God, uh, if you will. Well, who in that moment is God? So it's interesting that sometimes these myths. I I, I think that we also create. We can create them right here and now. That we don't need to rely upon the archetypal, even as 
there are beautiful ways that we, that we can and that we do that Joseph Campbell certainly highlights in that wonderful book of his uh, Hero with a Thousand Faces. Um, we, we create our own in so many ways. Young, I think, very much explored the, the, the play, the dance between the archetypal and the profoundly personal, the, uh, the myths that we create in our lives today, where I want to try to take this a little bit, it, well, it's just in two, two, different, two directions. It will really, it comes ultimately around to how we practice yoga and how we might teach yoga, hold the space of yoga classes, and invoke or share or suggest ideas of myth. One aspect of myth can be, let's say, generating positive affirmative meaning and significance in all the ways you described, cosmological, sociological, psychological, mythological. They can also be oppressive. That is, they can also be... The idea of dharma, and we read closely in the, in the Gita, is rooted in the concept of ritta, R-T-A, which means place, your place. And it is defined primarily by your gender, and they say in that text, binary gender. In the larger literature of yoga, a binary concept of gender. And um, your caste, as in your, your socioeconomic class situation in society, what these give you is, well, what you should do. Your dharma determined by your place, and so this becomes a foundation of patent racism, sexism, and other forms of, of control, of subjugation, of exploitation, even at the same time that we can find within these very ideas concepts of liberation, concepts of empowerment, concepts of transcendence, or whatever else it is that might really motivate one or give one the deepest meaning in life. I'd love to hear more from you, Bernie, about how you see yourself as a teacher and holding the space of a class, as well as anything in your personal life that you care to share about this, and maybe they're very much connected, with how you invoke myth and the kinds of stories that you might tell. I think our listening audience would be fascinated to hear what stories might you tell in a class that might be empowering, that might be more of a source of deeper self-understanding and self-empowerment, self-transformation? Yeah, that's a big topic. And I have a whole other course that I give where I dive into this much more deeply. And it's a 40-hour presentation based on the book, which, as you kindly mentioned, has been renamed Shiva Dancing at King Arthur's Court. Bernie, we'll put that in the show notes, your course. Oh, okay. Great. Thank you. But just to comment on dharma, the idea of what the word dharma means, like dharma to me is another map, and maps change. Maps over time are constantly being redrawn, rewritten based on newer experiences and people have gone different places. A map of Vancouver today looks a lot different than a map of Vancouver 100 years ago. We have in the yoga world this map called the Yoga Sutras, written ostensibly by some mythological guy named Patanjali. That's arguably 16, 1700 years old. Now, that map is probably no more appropriate for life today in the 21st century than trying to find a Starbucks on a map of Vancouver that's 100 years old. You know, the maps continually evolved. So people are always updating their maps, not realizing that maybe what they're saying today, what the word Dharma means, isn't what Patanjali meant or what uh, Arjuna was being taught by Krishna 2000 years ago. Today, a lot of people I hear, they're looking for their dharma. Well, 2,000 years ago, you didn't have to look for your dharma. You were born into it. As you mentioned, you, you didn't have a say in it. You didn't choose to be born male, female, or whatever. You didn't choose to be born a shudra or a, a vaisha or a kshatriya. You, you were given that. 
And that was a very effective way for society to maintain its cohesion. Joseph Campbell points out that all societies live on a knife edge. It's a very short distance to destruction. So all the members of society had to adhere to the rules of that society. And to make them adhere, the rules were not given by men. The rules were given by God. And in the biblical tradition, that's the same God that created the universe. That God that created the universe gives you the rules of how to live in this universe. Read Numbers, Leviticus, all those earlier books, and they tell you exactly how to live. Or read some of the, the Vedas, and they'll tell you how many times in the morning you should blow your nose and how long your sleeve should be. Life is completely prescribed and proscribed for you. You have no say in that. That's your dharma. Now, that's not what people think about dharma today. I'm going to go and live up to my dharma. I'm going to find out what I want to do. Well, there was no I want 3,000 years ago. There was never an enlightenment in South Asia. There was never this, this intellectual revolution that noticed the freedom of the individual. It was always your role in society. And that's the conflict between, as Joseph Campbell points out, the sociological function of mythology and the psychological function. We see this even today in America. In 1960, John F. Kennedy. Now, I'm not American, so I'm always careful when I cite American history. But from what I remember from being taught in Canadian schools, he, in his inauguration, he said, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Well, that's the voice of society. Ask what you can do for your country. But then you've got the beatniks, and you've got James Dean, and you've got uh, Jack Kerouac living wild on the road. You've got uh, Easy Rider with Jack Nicholson and Peter Fonda riding their bikes through the South. They were asking what they could do for themselves. And so you have society and the individual clashing. And it's always been this way. Which rule applies? Should I wear a mask? That's society. Should I be free not to wear a mask? That's the individual. And you'll always find this conflict. And right back to the Bhagavad Gita, it's the same thing. Arjuna didn't want to fight the war. He wanted to go off and be a dancer or a singer. And Krishna is saying, no, you're, you're a kshatriya. You're born to fight a holy war, a just war. So we see these two mythological imperatives coming together and Dharma wins because society needs Dharma to win. There are three pillars that underline all ancient societies. There's the caste system, and all ancient societies had some sort of variation of that. There were the kings, the priests, the middle class, and the, the slaves. There's the reincarnation system, and there's karma. Karma is the reincarnation system. In India, we have this idea that, sorry, yes, what's the third one? Varna. Varna is the caste. Dharma. Dharma is the other one. Dharma and karma. So we have the three legs, dharma, varna, and karma. So we talked about dharma already. You're born to this role in life. You have no say over that. You know, it's not like here where it's your birthday. What cake do you want? Do you want chocolate or do you want vanilla? And are you going to marry Susie or you're going to marry Betty? Well, there you, you're going to marry Susie. You haven't met her yet. You're going to have chocolate. There's no say. That's your dharma. And you're born into that through your varna, your caste system. And it's karma that puts you there. This is the ultimate blame the victim approach, right? You didn't choose that. Oh, no, yes, you did. You chose to be born as a shudra, as a, a servant, because of the things you did in your past life. 
Isn't that a wonderful technique to keep people under the thumb? There's no great American dream. Not everybody can grow up to be Barack Obama. This is what you're born to do. And that prevents any sort of French Revolution or American Revolution or the Age of the Enlightenment where individuals can decide what's right. Now, in the West, we have this conflict, as I mentioned, between the rights of the individual and the rights of society. And we're still working through that. But in the ancient societies, there was no rights of the individual. There was only the society and its rules. And these rules were brought into the culture through these stories, through these myths, which, as you just pointed out in the Bhagavad Gita, it's very much uh, racist, anti-misogynistic. This is your place in life. Now, you can also read into that many beautiful lessons, just like you can read into the Bible many beautiful lessons. But there's also some dark spots in there. There are some very dark areas of the yoga forest. <laughs> well, I think one of the things I find liberating about this idea of these concepts as maps, whether it's a scientific map or even these mythologies and these stories that underline society, they're also maps. Now, the beautiful thing is if a map that you're following doesn't work, if you're using a map to get to a yoga studio and you keep getting lost, well, that's not a good map. You're free to change it. You can get a better map. Now, we all have maps. Unconsciously, that's the landscape of our psyche. They're laid down when we're three years old, four years old by our parents, five or six by our schools, our friends, our media, society. They're creating all these maps that help us understand and navigate life. But if you find that you're constantly getting lost, you're not getting to where you want to go, then you can change your map. If your map is non-dualistic, there is, we are all divine, we all Brahman, or whatever it is, we're all the world's soul, but you find that doesn't really help you fill out your taxes, then you, you're free to use a different map. It's like, I can use a street map today to get to the golf course. I can use a weather map to see if I want to get to the golf course. I can use different maps. I can use a non-dualistic map in one time, but I can also use a dualistic map some other time. So you're free to change your maps. You don't have to always stick to the one map that society has imposed on you. But it doesn't mean it's useless. It doesn't mean it's wrong. Because no map is right. Maps are meant to be useful. And if it's not useful, find a different map. If it is useful, okay, use it. But don't believe that it's truth. No map is truth. No philosophy, no mythology is truth. They're only useful or not useful. A set of those maps are a trilogy of books, Your Body, Your Yoga Trilogy, uh, three deeply researched, beautifully produced in terms of the graphic design, the presentation of the ideas. Uh, these three books uh, Bernie Clark works on, you might think of it as anatomy, but it goes beyond. It really is about really trying to understand these human body minds uh, in practice and for teachers as well. Bernie, I, I always enjoy having conversations with you very much, and I hope, again, this is another beginning never an end to exploring and learning. Well, thanks, Mark. It was a pleasure to chat with you. I really enjoyed it. I just want to say again, thank you so much for being here. And I know you bring a lot of insight and wisdom to everybody in the world that through your teachings, you're thinking about it all. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening. Please see the show notes for links and resources from today's show, as well as links to our sponsors of this episode. If you're enjoying or learning from the Yoga Room podcast, please tell your friends and others who might be interested. You can also subscribe to the show on your favorite listening platform so you never miss anything. 
If you're listening on Spotify or Apple, please rate and review the show to support us in sharing healthy practices and engaging ideas from around the world. And again, thank you for joining us today.